now the time for Gray Matters. Well, uh, good evening and welcome to another edition of Gray Matters, the weekly news and media talk show. My name is Dick Whaley. And I'm Jim DeWire. And back from New York City, where, of course, the big continuing controversy are the horses in Central Park. Quickly, there's no time. Liam Neeson still the uh, point man for... He's the point man. Kind of interesting. Poop accumulation. Uh... <laughs> America's problems are so uh, trivial compared to the uh, carnage that's going on everywhere else. Anyway, it's in, uh, kind of ironic that we've been doing some Watergate shows. Uh, we taped those in honor of Richard Nixon. Those tapes can be listened back to... And... On our archive. In our archives. <laughs> Just because uh, over the weekend, uh, or I guess actually Friday, Jeb Magruder died. Yeah. In fact, uh, just last week on the recorded show, you mentioned him, Dean, and I forget the other uh, still surviving uh, co-conspirators. Yeah. It'll be very interesting to see if Magruder left something in a safe <laughs> with a lawyer uh, in an archive about his... His role in Watergate, because uh, he's kind of an interesting character. He was sort of the—he'd worked in the White House uh, for Bob Haldeman, and then he got promoted into the committee to reelect the president. A big creep man. A assistant. And I think he met Haldeman somehow, one way or another, in the advertising business out in California. Kind of an interesting life, a sort of a self-made— kind of old-fashioned fellow that uh, worked his way through college and had a variety of interesting work experiences uh, that you can read about in his obituary. But uh, he it's interesting, in 2003, and I'm reading from the obituary here, in an interview with PBS and the Associated Press, Magruder did drop his bombshell. He said that Nixon had personally authorized the break-in, and he revealed... And I'm relatively sure I saw that uh, particular edition, because obviously that would have been connected to an anniversary, uh, Nixon's presidency. Yeah, was that was a PBS thing, uh, anniversary of Watergate. Unraveling in 2000, uh, in 1973, and of course this year, the 40th anniversary, it was pretty much in its terminal stages. Resignation time. A couple of weeks ago, uh, James Schlesinger died, and uh, his uh, claim to fame, of course, was that he had ordered the Pentagon uh, to disobey or ignore any orders from Richard Nixon. In those late stages, 74. In which he might have wanted to start a war. He was drinking a lot, staying up late. He said... Um, Fussing and a fretting. Well... Dimitri, he's a little funny in the head. You know, just a funny. Little, little funny. Um, anyway, uh, Magruder revealed uh, that on the 30th of March, 1972, he uh, had basically, in a conversation with John Mitchell, who at that time uh, had resigned as attorney general and was the, quote, head of the Nixon campaign. John Mitchell, of course, was an old personal friend of Richard Nixon. They went way back. I don't know if they went back to the Duke days. 
Doubtful they were together at Whittier College, but uh, they certainly were uh, palsy-wowsy in New York City in the 1960s after Nixon uh, was no longer vice president and had lost the uh, race in 1962 for the the California gubernatorial uh, race to uh, Pat Brown, uh, father of current California Governor Jerry Brown. In any event, he told PBS that um, he said Mr. Uh, he said he and Mr. Mitchell were uncomfortable with the idea of the break-in, so Mitchell suggested that he immediately call H.R. Haldeman, the White House Chief of Staff, to ask him whether or not to go ahead with the plan. He made the telephone call in Mitchell's presence. Yes, the president wants it done, Mr. Haldeman said over the phone, according to Mr. Magruder. Uh, Mr. Haldeman then asked to speak with Mr. Mitchell. While they were speaking, Mr. Magruder said that he could hear the president come on the line. I could hear the president talking to him. Now, it's interesting. The Nixon Library disputes this version of events, uh, noting that the White House Daily Diary had recorded no calls to Key Biscayne on March 30th. That, of course, is a straw man argument because... Those files are missing. They would have been calling from the committee to reelect the president, not the White House. Unless, of course, Jeb Magruder was sitting in in the White House for some reason. Ah, the old executive office. Scene of many a prank and shenanigan. He had an office around the corner. Mm -hmm. And, of course, it's interesting... uh, Fred LaRue, a Nixon aide who was uh, convicted for his part in covering up Watergate, also questioned Mr. Magruder's assertion. He said that he had been at the meeting at Key Biscayne, charged with screening all telephone calls. He denied that there was a call and said that Magruder was a congenital liar. Well, I find it hard to believe that a Nixon bagman was screening all the president's calls in Key Biscayne. Uh, Mr. Raluba, uh, Mr. LaRue, by the way, his role in the Watergate cover-up was he was a bag man. He paid people off his uh, claim to fame <laughs> before working for the committee to reelect the president was that he had been a casino owner in Las Vegas where he undoubtedly knew Howard Hughes, which, of course, is part of the mystery involving Watergate. Well, anyway, Magruder is a kind of a fascinating figure because, like Colson, he went into the ministry. Mm-hmm. Post-prison. Uh, Post-prison. And unlike Colson, uh, he studied under William Sloan Coffin, studied ethics, not uh, evangelism. So they were uh, different kinds of ministers. Colson always had to be hard-edged. Whatever it was going to be, it was going to be in your face. Well, he liked giving those snappy ser- sermons to those, those church ladies. Isn't that special? You're damn right it is. It's special. All right. But what's interesting about Magruder was that early on in the investigation by Woodward and Bernstein, uh, they uncovered that money had been flowing around uh, rather uh, generously out of the uh, committee to reelect the president. This is while the 72 campaign was going on. And uh, Woodward called uh, Jeb Magruder personally. Uh, He was being questioned, apparently, by the FBI. And uh, Magruder sort of 
misled him, but he also noted, he said, but you got to help me, Magruder pleaded, and I'm reading here from the, all the president's men. I'll get in trouble if I'm quoted. Woodward told him that he might put that statement in the paper, too. Then at Magruder's request, they went on background. Woodward told him the Post intended to go ahead with the story of payoffs. Unless Magruder could come up with a convincing reason to hold it, Magruder did not argue, but he asked Woodward to write that government investigators rather than the FBI had informed Magruder of allegations against him. You got to help me on this, he said. And uh, he notes, Woodward notes here, he said the request didn't seem unreasonable, so Woodward agreed. Magruder's tone had made more of an impression on Woodward than his words. He was second in command at uh, Creep. His job at the White House had been deal, uh, to, had to uh, deal with the press, but his voice had been shaking as he talked to Woodward. And that was in September of 1972. Uh, Magruder eventually began to cooperate with the investigation into the... That's even before the election. <laughs> Yeah, well, he had confirmed s some information, and, you know, most of the pictures you see of Magruder back then, you can tell he's a kind of a stressed-out fella. He's still pretty young. He's in over his head. He'd worked for Haldeman, and he probably did legitimately have qualms about this whole <laughs> bugging and breaking operation. Uh, of course, the John Mitchell... Uh, was no stranger to bugging people. Uh, he and Kissinger uh, had bugged John Lennon, for instance. Uh, there were other enemies on Nixon's list. and uh, Of course, John Mitchell, uh, the opposite of the young, somewhat anxious, uh, uh, sweaty Jeb Stuart Magruder. Uh, Mitchell was just the picture of cool, calm, and just sucking on that pipe like he had opium in it or something. It was just, yeah. well... There you go. And at one point... Uh, <laughs> okay, Gramps. One of his more amusing anecdotes was uh, when he heard about one of uh, Gordon Liddy's crazy um, plans. He, um, he puffed on his pipe and said, well, that's not what we had in mind. But So why don't you go back to the drawing board? When questioned by the Senate... Uh, that wasn't bombing the Brookings Institute, was it? It's probably one of Liddy's uh, various schemes. He had a number of them, and of course, uh, at one point, he even apparently threatened to kill Magruder mm. after Magruder had his hand on his shoulder and Gordon Liddy, undoubtedly a homophobe, <laughs> no uh, homosexuality involved in this uh, incident, uh, said, get your hand off my shoulder. <laughs> then he overreacted. But then Liddy was known to be into sadomasochism. He, apparently, he allegedly uh, used to stick his arm under a flame to uh, demonstrate willpower. I'm not sure if he still has his radio show. I, he probably does somewhere out there in the... Yeah, it's probably listen, listen to a couple of those church ladies that Colson uh, read sermons right. to. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Magruder, kind of an important figure in the unraveling of the cover-up. Uh, as it... Uh, well, he, he eventually somewhat cooperated with uh, uh, prosecutors, but he, in the initial phases of the of the investigation, he did lie uh, to the uh, grand jury court, whatever, whoever was investigating at the time, and he ended up serving 10 years in prison. 
So very very interesting to find out if something somewhere down the line emerges from Magruder's uh, file cabinet. Uh, well, who else besides Dean uh, survives from that inner circle? Well, that's kind of an interesting question. I'm pretty sure that Egil Crow is still alive. I'm sure that some of the younger aides of Nixon uh, are probably still around, probably around Magruder's age because he was 79. Okay. Now, Schlesinger, of course, was a older man uh, who served also with Gerald Ford and Jimmy Carter. He mm -hmm. was, ironically, Jimmy Carter's energy secretary. But he had headed the uh, CIA for a brief period of time, sort of an interregnum between uh, um, uh, R Richard Helms and uh, William Colby. One of the more amusing things that I uh, was reading over my little break in New York, so to speak, was this amusing anecdote uh, from... Gordon Liddy mm. and uh, <laughs> E. Howard Hunt. This Hunt, he knows too damn much. Too damn much. <laughs> so I, I wanted to read this just for its amusement value. Uh, this is during the burglaries that are going on uh, in, in May uh, before they eventually got caught. And this is from Christopher Andrews' uh, interesting book, For the President's Eyes Only, Secret Intelligence from the American presidency, from Washington to Bush. Now, this is Bush the first, not Bush the second. Um, and Christopher Andrew is considered one of the sort of preeminent uh, British historians on um, Soviet and intelligence questions. He has done some lecturing here in the United States, but he's essentially based in Cambridge, at Cambridge University in, in, uh, in Great Britain. And he's written several books about the KGB and spying and whatnot. But this, uh, this, this anecdote is quite amusing. He writes, Once Liddy had received the go-ahead from Mitchell, he recruited Howard Hunt, his fellow burglar, during the raid on the office of Ellsberg's psychiatrist to assist in the Watergate break-in. Hunt re-enlisted the Cuban burglars, whom they had used for an earlier raid. James McCord, an ex-CIA Agent hired by Creep as a security consultant was put in charge of the surveillance equipment. Even by the dismal standards of the Beverly Hills operation, which was the psychiatrist, uh, Daniel Allsberg psychiatrist, the bungles during the Watergate burglary almost defy belief. The first attempted uh, break-in on May 26th had to be aborted, forcing Hunt to spend the night hiding in a liquor closet in the Watergate Hotel. The next morning, Hunt advised Liddy never to order scotch at the Watergate. Last night in that damn closet, <laughs> I had to take a leak. I was desperate, so I found a nearly empty bottle of Johnny Walker Red. It's now quite full. And probably not so red. <laughs> and one can imagine... Uh, <clears throat> from the humor of a situation like that, that yeah, maybe Tricky Dick and B.B. Uh, Rebozo had gone into the Watergate to have a few. <laughs> Pour me out some of that good 20-year-old scotch. <laughs> <laughs> 
And, of course, Rebozo <clears throat> undoubtedly disguised as a real plumber. Uh, easy to costume to emulate. You know, just make sure your pants hang really low. Keep that pen back there in the old storage slot. <laughs> so I can picture uh, Richard Nixon disguised as a house painter and B.B. Rebozo as a plumber ordering scotch at the Watergate Hotel. Starts to take on the overtones of a Three Stooges uh, two-reeler. <laughs> Nixon probably pretty well cast as Mo, yeah. the mean one. <laughs> Damn it, Rebozo. Don't order any Johnny Walker Red at the <laughs> Watergate Hotel. That bottle may be still in the closet. Well, <laughs> the president's men. The, the bungles and capers of E. Howard Hunt and G. Gordon Liddy. Fascinating stuff. Meanwhile, H.R. Puffin stuff over there, trying to keep uh, Nixon cool and calm. Well, uh, of course, later this uh, year, we'll have to also consider another significant and noteworthy anniversary uh, on the international spectrum, uh, the advent of World War I, the centenary thereof, of course, uh, opening moves of August 1914. Um, but that is the signal event that pretty much establishes the era in which we live. Uh, world War I is the, historically speaking, the determining factor for the modern world. Or postmodern, if you wish. Yeah, and of course, until World War II, it was called the Great War. There has been an amazing amount of historiography the last couple of years in connection with this uh, upcoming anniversary. And of course, it, it was uh, the first war that featured aerial bombardment of civilians, which uh, <laughs> is uh, certainly still with us. Uh, in fact, we've, we've now uh, moved to non-manned uh, aerial bombardment. Not of civilians, per se, on the mass scale of uh, World War II, but targeted mm, right, targeted uh, folks. And uh, one of the other uh, big media stories over the weekend, of course, was the, the firing of Jill Abramson. Uh, I think this is kind of an interesting story uh, as it relates to this, uh, the whole kind of modern debate about... Uh, uh, glass ceilings and w women and minorities in the media. I think that David Carr's uh, presentation in today's New York Times uh, is, a, is a relatively accurate description of what kind of happened here. Uh, I don't think she was fired for any um, reasons involving compensation or um, sexism or anything like that. I think that there just had reached a point involving her style that uh, wasn't working and the owner of the uh, of the New York Times basically um, changed editors and of course uh, a newspaper like the New York Times the reason it, it you don't say well it's the best newspaper in the world but you do say that it's the most important because it guides quite a lot of media coverage uh, here in the United States and even even abroad well, it's even more so now that there are so many fewer daily newspapers. Yeah. Its impact is, I think, even greater than it was 20 years ago in that regard. And they have, you know, they have at least foreign correspondents in, in a lot of places where <laughs> there's literally nobody. 
um, or very few. There are freelance journalists, but not foreign bureaus, so to speak. And I'm sure we'll hear a lot over the next couple of days about the uh, Abramson's, quote, shortcomings of the paper. Um, Because Carr talks about it extensively in in today's um, column. He's got a kind of a media column on Mondays called The Media Equation. And, of course, Carr himself has had somewhat of a controversial past that we won't go into at this point. He even admits that he was good friends with uh, Jason Blair, who was fired for plagiarism at one point. But the bottom line, as he puts it, and I'm trying to find the exact quote because I should have underlined it, but I know roughly where it is in the article. He um, talks about some of the recent problems uh, with Howell Reigns and and that whole situation and um, why uh, he was replaced. And, of course, Abramson got a lot of notoriety because she was the first female executive editor of the New York Times. Well, she called it a dream job. It's my understanding today she uh, delivered a commencement at Wake Forest in which she kind of kept the subject at arm's length. Um, It's probably part of the termination agreement. The New York Times, by the way, has gone out of its way to point out that there was no um, issue involving compensation. There was no disparity with the previous editor, uh, Bill Keller. Um, Sulzberger actually issued a statement over the weekend that her departure had not come about because she had asked for more money. This was basically a, a system, an issue of style within the newsroom. And uh, as Carr points out in his uh, piece, he owns the joint. He says he gets to do that because he owns the joint. And the Times has sold off assets, and I found the spot now, and pared down uh, to a single brand. Mr. Sulzberger has been focusing acutely on that brand. Uh, he and goes out of his way to praise Abramson for being, for putting out a good product. Um, I don't think it's a question of standards. I think it's a question of style. Sounds like this new uh, fellow, Ms. B- uh, Mr. Basquiat, I think that's how you pronounce it, is kind of more of a laid-back kind of dude, more of a consensus guy who, quote, works the floor, whatever that means. So uh, we'll, we'll certainly be following this story for the next couple of weeks because um, I'm sure there will be a lot of uh, background stories on this uh, subject because it's ironic over this past week the female head editor of Le Monde was also fired for a style similar to Jill Abramson which has been sort of described as brusque and domineering and this gets into this kind of modern, postmodern d- uh, description of uh, women in business, that whole debate. I don't know what your thoughts are on this. Well, just, you know, it's one of those things where uh, people get fired all the time yeah. for all sorts of reasons. And so the, the fact that there are so few women in the industry makes even their firings, which may be ordinary procedural matters or stylistic preferences uh, in regards to a media outlet like this, that... Uh, it becomes a story again simply because 
that there are so few women in the industry. So the, the answer seems to be more women in the industry. Uh, there's a similar article in the recent Progressive magazine about uh, David Letterman's retirement. And, of course, I guess Stephen Colbert is named to uh, replace him. Uh, Jay Leno steps down. You know, Craig Ferguson stepping down. Why are there no women in a late-night TV hosting gig? There never have been. There's the one Chelsea, what's-her-name girl, has a show called Chelsea Lately. Uh, it's not quite the same time slot, but that's a you know limited viewing cable channel thing. Um, there's lots of funny women. Uh, why has one never been given the host of a big show like that? Well, it may it may be coming up. Uh, who knows? Because um, <clears throat> I, I don't remember who is replacing Colbert, but I do recall that he is a minority. Um, and, uh, you know, Letterman, this is kind of interesting. I actually saw a live oh, did you? version of the Letterman show. Recently? That's... Recently, Cinco de Mayo. Okay. I, I didn't intend to be going to this, but one of my buddies landed some tickets. and <laughs> I was kind of going, well, it sounds like a lot of standing in line, and it was. Uh, he looks quite old. He's very thin. You can tell he's not well. Uh, he's probably resigning for health reasons or retiring. Oh, he's been doing it for 30 years. And Barbara too, Waller's so, yeah. retired. Yeah. So there's been a lot of there's this. There's a big generational shift uh, turnover at play on. here, yeah. And rumors are that Katie Couric is coming back um, to head one of the morning shows, uh, NBC, whatever. I'm never up at that hour to, right, me neither. <laughs> to watch those things. And those are not uh, news shows. Those are entertainment shows. Uh, Letterman's show, by the way, just for the record, was on Cinco de Mayo. So he had a couple of cheap uh, Joe Biden jokes regarding pardoning burritos and whatnot. Peyton Manning was one of the guests, so it wasn't an exceptionally good show with revealing interviews. And there was a, a, a young actress who I'd never even heard of uh, who's got an upcoming movie coming up. Um, so uh, it was yeah. kind of a mediocre show from my perspective, but what the heck. Uh, Letterman is clearly, you know, in wonderful snarky form. That's what he's good at. Yep. And the top ten was a kind of a bizarre thing involving a a squirrel that had attacked a, uh, a dude on a bridge who was <laughs> taking a selfie or something. <laughs> yeah, the usual silliness of the United right. States of America. But... Uh, it will be kind of interesting to follow both uh, the Le Monde story and the New York Times story because, of course, Le Monde is one of Paris's most important newspapers. And they seem to both have been fired while fighting, you know, fighting for their job, so to speak. But um, group uh, production, and that, of course, is what a newspaper is all about. You know, it it doesn't matter if you're brilliant sometimes. You you have to be able to get along with others. And sometimes when there's dissent within the rank and file, um, it's, it's going to happen. You know, it's interesting to, to compare this to the predicament of uh, Erickson Shinseki, the uh, VA um, head who's under fire, literally, by a lot of critics who wish to see him resign. Or be fired, claiming that these VA problems are his responsibility. I would argue that all the people that I've heard 
uh, demanding his resignation are the very people that voted for the Iraq war and the Iran war. And this is really a problem of demand and supply. Indeed. Didn't those people uh, create all the problems that caused all those injuries? You got it. Anyway, just a friendly reminder that you are listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Yazoo City Calling will be coming up shortly right here on this fine station. So uh, a lot of um, kind of interesting sort of big names in media uh, bopping around here. And I don't know who replaces Barbara Walters. Maybe The View needs a man on the show. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Mad Magazine's got some good recent stuff on The View. <laughs> I'll just leave my comments at that. But, uh, well, I guess there's too little time to uh, begin to delve into the uh, psychopathic madness that uh, could be at the heart of Boko Haram. Oh, good Lord. But uh, another, again, a story uh, that reveals the um, second-class status of women. This it's kind of an old story that yeah. this recently became a big deal. Um, these girls were abducted almost two months ago, um, but it didn't become a big story until recently. And I guess nobody should, should be surprised that uh, the Nigerian people are uh, reaping what decades of corrupt army thugocracy has provided for them for uh, for endless decades. But uh, and of course, the kleptocracy of the oil revenue. This right. is once again an example of Western multinational corporations acting irresponsibly and inappropriately. Uh, there's some evidence that these big corporations have even uh, helped some of this unrest covertly. Uh, this is, uh, you know, it's a messy situation. And of course, these uh, <clears throat> radical, almost insane uh Islamic groups in, in parts of Africa that are operating like this, it's, it's very problematic because these states are just not strong enough to deal with the problems. Indeed. So more next week. Thanks to Andrew for engineering. Stay tuned. Yazoo City Calling coming up next. Born the youngest of 15, spoiled yappy dog made overcoming adversity her first order of business. From day one, she's had an agenda to get things done, protecting our youth and fighting the good fights. Spoiled yappy dog has never chased after special interests, only the occasional mail truck. Elect spoiled yappy dog to the House of Representatives. This message paid for by citizens for spoiled yappy dog. If you're not voting, then who are you electing? To learn more, visit payattention.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor, 88.3. The show is called Yazoo City Calling. Let's go down and proud. It's a big sensation in New Orleans. Come and let's go. Come and let's go. Come and let's go now. 